we are going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning. Um, Mark, as you remember, is the best gospel of all four. And um, I am a little biased, but uh, that's what I think. Some of you may know who D.M. Stearns was, or maybe you didn't. He was a famous preacher in the early 1900s and would preach a lot up and down the eastern seaboard, great communicator. And one, one day he was communicating and preaching in Philadelphia. And at the close of the service, a stranger came up to him and said, you know, I, I don't like the way that you talk about the cross. I think that instead of emphasizing the death of Christ, it would be better if you, if you emphasized that Jesus was a great teacher or a great example to mankind. And Stearns replied, if I presented Christ in that way, would you be willing to follow him? Oh, I certainly would, said the stranger without hesitation. All right then, said Mr. Stern, let's take the first step. Jesus did not commit any sin. Can you claim that for yourself since he's your example? And the man looked confused and somewhat surprised. He said, well, why no, but, but I acknowledge that I am a sinner and that I do sin. And then Mr. Stearns replied, well, then your greatest need is for a savior, not an example. This morning, as we head towards Easter on our calendar, I wanna talk about several things about Jesus over the next several weeks before Easter and after Easter. I believe that this is a great time for you and I to think about what we believe about Jesus, to discover who he is. Is he a good teacher? Is he a great prophet? Or is he the savior of the world? See, we are asking ourselves a very important question this year. What do I believe? So let's take the next several weeks and discover what do we believe about Jesus? We're going to look at Mark chapter 8 this morning because it's really, really important. And this is right in the midway of the gospel. Mark has 16 chapters. And so chapter 8 is right in the middle. Jesus has done a whole bunch of really, really cool stuff in chapters 1 through 8. But now they're heading towards Jerusalem for the last time. And Jesus knows it's their last time. The disciples don't know that yet. But they're heading that direction for the last time. So he's beginning to communicate with the disciples about what's going to happen in Jerusalem and how this trip will be very different than the ones that they had taken before because this trip would be his last. And he begins in chapter 8 to communicate with the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die and to come back to life. Now for the disciples, Jesus' words were very confusing they didn't quite understand why Jesus would need to die for the sins of mankind instead of ruling an earthly kingdom and kicking the Romans out. To them, that made a whole lot more sense that their earthly freedom would be more important than their spiritual freedom. And so they're wrestling with that. They're trying to figure that out. And in our story, we're going to see that they have not quite figured that out yet. But Jesus is taking them along and trying to help them figure that out. I think in many ways, the same is true today. In many ways, you and I and our culture and the world around us are still 
trying to figure out who Jesus is. Is he the savior of the world? Or is he just a good example? Is he a great historical figure or a good prophet? Or is he my personal savior? And that question will come up in our story as well. Because this is the story of the life, death, and return to life of Jesus Christ. And we'll be sharing several of those truths about Jesus this Easter. Now, the first truth that I want to declare about Jesus today, and will carry us all the way through Easter, is this, that Jesus is the Savior. And I want to declare that I believe Jesus is the Savior, and I hope that you can declare that too. And so we're going to preach a series of messages called, I Believe Jesus Is, and we'll fill in the blank. So this morning is, I believe Jesus is the Savior. We all want to be able to say that because we're asking this self our question, what do I believe? This is important because believing in Jesus as our Savior answers the greatest question of our lives. See, the question that we are all asking ourselves and they're always dialoguing about and always talking about is what happens to us after this life? What happens to us after our life here on earth? Now, here's what's interesting. Every single culture, if you go as far back as we, we have record of culture, this is a question in culture. It's still a question today in every single culture. And it doesn't matter whether you find somebody in the middle of the Amazon jungle who has no technology, or you go to the, the, the biggest city in the world with the most technology, all of humanity is still asking this very, very important question. What happens to me when I die? Now that question is never gonna go away because it's deep in our soul. It's placed there by God himself when he created us. Every one of us is created to want relationship with God. And so we always have this question bouncing around in our head and we see it in music, we see it in movies, we see it in TV shows, all the time it's being dialogued about and everybody has their own ideas. But as the believers of Christ, we need to answer this question more importantly than anybody because we know him and are his followers and we want to communicate it well to the world. Now, I would say as a culture, in American culture, we don't ask this question near as much as we should. We don't ask the most important questions as much as we should. We don't talk about the most important things in culture and in circles and hang out together in people's houses and talk about the most important things in the world as often as we should. Instead, we are very distracted by the pleasures of this world and by the technology that we have. And while the technology is awesome and the things that we have are great, we avoid this question in so many ways. And the enemy of our soul keeps this question out of our heart and out of our mind, even though it needs to get answered in a very, very important way, which takes us to Mark chapter eight. I wanna show us this moment in Jesus' life. He's hanging out with the disciples. He's having a short dialogue with them. And as you know, Jesus never does anything accidentally. So it's, it's easy to see as you read it and as you study it that Jesus has purpose in everything he's doing from the beginning of this conversation to the very end of this conversation with his disciples. Every single point, every single question, every single moment is intentional about what Jesus is trying to communicate to us about himself and about how you and I are called to live 
as followers of Jesus Christ. So let's look at it together. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, so they're walking, on the way he asks them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now that's a pretty good conversation just to have with Jesus, hanging out with his disciples, hanging out with people, and this is a pretty good conversation. So I'd like us to dive in, look at several things that I think are extremely important in this conversation, and acknowledge some of the things that are in the text. So let me acknowledge some of the things that are just like overtly obvious in the text that sometimes seem interesting and challenging and might be like, uh-huh, what's that for? The first one is that Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. And then the next thing that Jesus says, which he did often, he said, I, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. <laughs> don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. And it's one of those kind of like oxymorons, like, Jesus, wait a second. You're going to save me from my sin? And you don't want me to tell anybody? Like, why, why not? Well, at this point in Jesus' life, and this, by the way, would be the only time that we would ever do this, right? Is right now, right in this time period. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to get to that in a moment. And it's, it's because they had a false view of who the Messiah was. And because of their false view of the Messiah, they would have treated Jesus or tried to make him an earthly king, and that could not take place. Jesus needed to die on the cross and come back to life so that you and I could have eternal life. And that was his purpose, and that was his plan. And so he needed nothing to get in the way of that. And something that could have gotten in the way of that was letting the whole country get behind him as the Messiah and rush him to the throne, try to get into a battle with the Romans and ruin everything, right? He actually needed the Pharisees to hate him. 
He needed people to hate him and he needed to go to the cross. Another thing that Jesus talked about, it's just tough, especially for the disciples at this time, was that he would be rejected and killed and would come back to life three days later. A little bit hard to swallow at the time for them because they're hanging out with the guy who's raising the dead. You hang out with a guy long enough that's raising the dead all the time, you begin to have this different philosophy in your head. And it's probably something like, well, this guy's probably going to live a long time if he's raising the dead all the time. But he's, now he's saying, I'm going to die in the prime of my life. In fact, it's probably going to be in a short time from now, several weeks from now, I'm going to die. And that's a hard concept for them to wrap their mind around, especially when they've embraced the idea that Jesus is God, that he is the Messiah, and that he's here to help them understand how to live for God and, and to take care of their oppression. And then Jesus says several other things that are, are just really huff, tough for us to, to understand and to live out as he begins to talk about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He says a couple things. The first he says is deny yourself. So that one's always tough, right? So deny yourself. Just like whatever you want, don't do that anymore. <laughs> Only do what Jesus wants. Like that's a tough one, right? I don't know about you. That's still tough for me to live that way to wake up every day and say, okay, I'm not gonna do what Mark wants to do today. I'm gonna do what Jesus wants to do today. Anybody else have that problem? Just me? Okay, four or five of you, great. The rest of you um, need a special counseling session with me this week. <laughs> Deny yourself, that's tough. Like that's a whole nother message I'm not gonna get into today. Then he says, take up your cross. So let's talk about this just for a second. We may not understand this because we live in a much more modern and, and, um, and kind society. Okay, let's, let's just say it that way. But here's what I, wanna, I want you to imagine with me for a minute. If we were living in the time of the Romans or the Romans still ruled us today, then as we rolled into Cheney in our cars, guess what would be at the stoplight? People being crucified. If you stole from somebody in town, you'd be hanging on a cross out there at the stoplight. If you said that Caesar was not your king, you'd be hanging on a cross out there at the stop sign. And every time you pulled up to the stoplight, you'd see people dying on a cross, suffering, brutal torture, dying on a cross to remind you <laughs> that you are a slave of the Roman Empire. That's what it meant. That's what a cross meant. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, they're thinking, wait a second. What, are you telling me to die for you? Is that what you're asking me to do? Yep. That's what it means to be my disciple. Now in about three weeks, they're going to go, oh, wait a second. He died for me. Oh. I think I can die for him if he died for me. Then he says, lose your life to save it. Now this breaks every American thing in our mind, right? Lose your life to save it because our lives are all about what? Have a great time in life. Like this is awesome. Your life should be the greatest ever. It's yours. 
We're, we're independent people, and, and based on the Constitution, every single one of us are our own people, and we get to do whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want, and now we live in a great time where what I think needs to be what everybody thinks <laughs> instead of the other way around. And so we're now in this culture, in this time, where we can literally truly say, I want to do whatever I want, and Jesus is saying, no, you have to lose your life to save it. If you try to save your life, if you try to live your life your way and you try to do everything your way in a selfish way, you will lose your life. You won't get more life. You'll lose life. And how many Hollywood stars have we noticed do that? Like they got everything in the world and they're the one that commits suicide or drug overdose. Why? Because they, they discover without Jesus, I've got nothing. I got everything in the world, but I've got nothing. In this room, if you've acknowledged Jesus Christ, you have everything. You have everything. And then, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm going to help us. Did you notice that right in the middle of the last section, right, right in verse 36, Jesus talks about what the most important thing in the world is? Have you ever asked yourself that question, just sitting around, having coffee with a friend, what do you think the most important thing in the world is? Like the most important thing? Your soul. Your soul. That's right. Your soul. Because Jesus says this. It's a rhetorical question, by the way. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, Jesus says this. Capital One hasn't figured this out yet, but your soul is priceless. There's no price on it. You cannot put a price on your soul. It is that valuable. And so Jesus says this. If you became the richest person on the planet, you'd still miss what being wealthy is. You'd still miss the most important thing on the planet. Even if you said, I have the most important thing that culture says is important, cars and houses and money and gold and whatever, I, I must have all of the most important things in the world. I'm the richest person in the world. I'm, I must be the most awesome person in the world. And Jesus would say, no, you're not because you forfeited your soul. Our soul is the most important thing in the world. So these are challenging words. These are challenging things that Jesus asks us to do. Now, we have a modern day example of this. Let me, let me explain it to you with an illustration. How many of you are enjoying the Star Wars series, The Mandalorian? Okay, some of you, great, not all of you. Some of you, let me explain it to those of you that are unworthy. Um, <laughs> The Mandalorians are a group of people in the vast universe. They're, they're mostly uh, bounty hunters and, and people for hire, and they're really cool people, and they have all this really cool stuff. Um, but they make great sacrifices to be a Mandalorian. To be called a Mandalorian and to live as a Mandalorian, they make great sacrifices. For instance, one of their great sacrifices is that when you're about 10 years old and you become a Mandalorian and you go through the ritual to become a Mandalorian, you, can, you get a helmet. You get a brand new metal helmet and you can never take your helmet off. 
in your entire life, you can never take your helmet off. Uh, let, let, let me help you with this. This is an entirely new, brings an entirely new idea to Hathead. Okay, entirely new idea. You, you cannot take your helmet off. Now that's weird, right? We would say that that's weird, but I would also say that it's smelly. I can't imagine what my head or my hair would feel like or smell like in my own helmet all the time if I never washed my hair, not once in my entire lifetime. Dreadlocks might be a whole new thing in my helmet. Now, here's what's interesting. The Mandalorians have a saying. They have a saying about all of these interesting things that they've committed their lives to, and they say it to one another whenever they're together and they talk about these weird and ridiculous things that they do. They say this to one another. If you know it, you say it with me. They say what? This is the way. That's right. This is the way. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Christians in the first, second, third century were called the way. Now, like they are the original Mandalorians. This is the way. Now, follow me for a second. Follow me. I'm, I'm not kidding here. This is the way. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. This is the way. Take up your cross and follow me. This is the way. Never be ashamed of Jesus, no matter what. This is the way. Lose your life to save it. This is the way. See, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, there are things you have to accept and understand about me. If we're going to declare today, I believe Jesus is my Savior, then we must accept several very challenging things. Now, the first one we must accept is this. We must understand who Jesus is and who he is not. In this section, Jesus is going to address that. Who Jesus is and who he is not. Now, look with me. Notice the first question that Jesus asks uh, to the disciples as they're walking along the road heading to Caesarea Philippi. The first question he asks is, who do people say I am? Now, this is interesting. Let me point out what, what might be obvious or may not be. This is not Jesus asking an identity question. I, I need to know what people say about me because I'm just not sure. I've looked at my Facebook page and I don't have very many likes today. But that's not what Jesus is saying here, okay? He's asking, he's helping the disciples along a very important path. So follow me here, don't, don't, don't lose me. Who do people say I am? And they answer. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. See, the people's view, and Peter's view as well, by the way, because his response to Jesus mentioning that he was going to die and come back to life proves a certain narrative and a certain thinking, a certain mindset that was alive and real right now during the first century about the Messiah, about the Savior of the world. See, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had not taught the people the full truth 
about the Messiah. They had taught a half-truth about the Messiah. Now, how many of you know that a half-truth often gets you in more trouble than a complete lie? See, a complete lie, you can just immediately go, oh, <laughs> no, that, that's a lie. But a half-truth kind of sucks you in a little bit, and then you're not sure which way to go, and then before you know it or not, you're stuck in a lie. That's what a half-truth does. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had done that. Let me explain. They were teaching that the Messiah would be a great leader and would free them from oppression. From the Romans. Or whoever else was governing at the time. It's a half-truth. Is it true that all of the prophets said that the Messiah would come to free us from oppression? Yes, it is true. But do the prophets say that he would come to free us from only government oppression? No. That's the half lie. Now, it works to their advantage for them to be free from the oppression of the Romans. Why? So that the Pharisees can institute the Old Testament law again and get super rich. So to them, it's perfect. And Peter has been caught up in this. While Peter, it's interesting, right? Peter's living a half-life. Even though he's followed Jesus around for three years, he still is not fully convinced of the Messiah and who the Messiah is because when Jesus starts talking about dying for, for the sins of mankind, he gets, his panties get all in a wad. See, Peter wanted Jesus to be an earthly king too. He's upset. He's angry. And he has not quite figured out that spiritual oppression is way more serious than physical oppression. So Jesus says this to Peter after he asks his second question. Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Now Peter be, continues as Jesus talks about dying and coming back to life. Peter rebukes Jesus, which um, we should probably notice something in this text, just really quick, complete side note. Never rebuke Jesus. You know why? He'll call you Satan. <laughs> I mean, have you noticed that right here? Like, get behind me, Satan. So don't ever rebuke Jesus. Just that's completely free. Total side note. But here's what's interesting. After Jesus looks at Peter and starts to begin the process of helping Peter figure out what it means to follow Jesus, Jesus says this to Peter. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And here's what I want to say about that. This statement is the key to understanding that Jesus is the Savior of the world. This is the point right here. It's the crux. Because when we see that the purposes, plans, and concerns of God are more important than our extremely short-sighted, often selfish human plans, then Jesus' teachings and the cross and the resurrection will become perfectly clear to you and change your life forever. But most of the time, we what? 
we think about our concerns, just like Peter did. We think about our life. We actually think about, like Peter was, how Jesus, being in relationship with Jesus, could benefit me. That's what Peter's thinking about. Wait a second, if you die, that doesn't benefit me. So you can't die, because right now it's really cool. Like everywhere we go, the crowds follow you, and I'm, I'm on the in crowd. I'm Peter. I, I like, I'm one of the 12. In fact, I'm not one of the 12. I'm one of the three. In fact, I'm not one of the three. You said that you might do something really cool in my life. Maybe I'm the one. Like you can't go anywhere, because that, that would mess up my really cool life. And Jesus says, you know what, Peter? To follow me, you're going to have to stop thinking about your concerns and put me first. You're going to have to deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. Lose your life to save it because your soul is more important than your physical body. That's radical. See, what Peter had done is he lowered Jesus' viewpoint in his own mind, just like we do today. Even today, people don't talk highly of Jesus. Not high enough, anyway. Especially in higher education. We say things like, Jesus was a good teacher. I like his stuff about love and forgiveness. Uh, I like his stuff about how he accepted everyone. Uh, I don't like his idea that um, you have to go through him to get to heaven because I think there's lots of ways to get to heaven. I don't like his teaching about money because he said something about giving money to God and I don't want to give money to God. I want to ha have it all for myself. So he's a good teacher, but I'll just take what I like and, not, and take what I don't like. Well, then Jesus isn't the savior of the world to you. He's just a good teacher. Well, I think he's an important historical figure because like the world changed for 1950 years. <laughs> And now we just think he's old, an old dude. So he's an important historical figure, so we should probably see that. Hindus consider Jesus to be a self-realized saint who's reached the highest level of God consciousness. Buddhists say that Jesus is a, has great compassion. They even call him Buddhasattva, which is a perfectly enlightened being. Muslims believe that Jesus is a great prophet, but not the son of God and not the savior of the world, but he will return to fight and defeat the Antichrist. I don't know how he can do that without being the savior of the world, but whatever. <laughs> See, there will always be different viewpoints about who Jesus is. There will always be things that will not acknowledge Jesus' perfect messianic identity. How about the people who lived with Jesus? What did they say about him? Well, John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He called him the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. Matthew said Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. The wise men traveled all the way from their country to claim and declare that he was the king of the Jews. John said he is the word in the beginning. He was with God and is God, that everything was created by him and for him. What did Jesus say about himself? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the light of men. I am the bread of life. He said, I'm the son of man. I'm the Messiah. He said, I am the way to heaven. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. See, this basic understanding and meaning of Messiah is important. It's important for them. It's important for us. Messiah basically means this. It means the one anointed to God. The one. In other words, Old Testament prophecy would say that there's only one Messiah. There's not several. There's only one. Only one person is going to fulfill all of these 300 prophecies, which Jesus did. W.L. Lane in his commentary on Mark says this about the concept of Messiah. It implies divine election and appointment to a particular task and a special endowment of power for its performance. The expectation of a future anointed leader was grounded in the promise of a faithful ruler from David's line, as we see in 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 55, and Jeremiah 23. In later Judaism, the term Messiah became increasingly fluid. Could you say that word? Fluid. In the emergence of a variety of messianic projections. The concept of a Davidic Messiah was only one strand of expectation among many. Now, here's what's interesting. The teachers of the law had their own messianic projections, many of which would benefit them personally. They began to have a fluid concept of the Messiah. It became very confusing, didn't it? Just like we have fluid concepts of other things today that have become very confusing. Now, they would rarely teach the people about Isaiah 53, which is interesting. Let's jump right to Isaiah 55 and skip over Isaiah 53. Well, to get to Isaiah 55, you got to go through Isaiah 53. So how'd you miss an entire chapter, the largest chapter by none, in the entire prophetic utterance about the Messiah to get to chapter 55? Either you're an incompetent reader or you have your own agenda. See, Isaiah 53 is what helps us accept who Jesus is and who he is not. Isaiah 53 also helps us understand the second truth that we must accept about Jesus, and that is that Jesus' purpose on earth was to die and come back to life. See, before Jesus is born on the earth and before he makes this very powerful statement here in Mark chapter 8, there's this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53. Now today, because of the writers of the New Testament, we know that Jesus' purpose from come, was, was to leave heaven and come to earth was to fulfill all of the law and the prophets and especially Isaiah 53. So that's great. What does Isaiah 53 say? Well, let's go look. Isaiah 53 is a tough chapter, but it says some very, very important things for you and me. Isaiah 53 declares what Jesus is declaring in Mark chapter 8. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 53. It says this, Surely he, he being the Messiah, took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, 
have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Yet he has suffered. He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's kind of hard to skip over that chapter and miss that Jesus was going to come and die. If you believe that Jesus was the Messiah and you understand the correct narrative given to us by the prophets, then you would understand that that's exactly what Jesus had to do if you understood Isaiah 53. But because the Pharisees wanted us to believe something different, they taught something different so that their way could be seen. But Isaiah 53 is clear. Mark 8 is clear. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus' purpose for coming to earth was to die. Why? For our pain. Anybody have pain? To die for our suffering and brokenness, our transgressions, our iniquities, for our healing. Jesus died for the punishment that we should have gotten, Isaiah 53 says, so that we could have peace with God. He died for the sins of many. But Isaiah 53 tells us that he would come back to life. He would come back to life for one purpose, to justify many. In other words, to make it so that it was just as if you and I never sinned. So when the Heavenly Father looks at us now, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. When we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again and we, we become saved and you say, Jesus is my Savior, my personal Savior, the righteousness of Christ covers all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our iniquity, all of our punishment, and we have peace with God. And this is exactly what Jesus is making clear in Matthew chapter 8, verse 31, when he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, why is this Jesus' purpose? Because he knows the plans and the purposes and the concerns of God. He knows exactly what humanity needs most. He sees what we don't see. He values a relationship with each of us more than anything, and he would do whatever it took to be in relationship with us. 
This was his purpose because he is love. This was his purpose because Jesus came to save you because it's your greatest need. Your greatest need is that your soul needs saving. And it's the most important thing on earth and Jesus cares more about your soul than even his own life. Now, when we accept these things, we understand that Jesus is the savior of the world, which leads us to the third thing. Third, we must believe Jesus is still the savior of our modern world. Like we could look at this text and we could say, well, that's great. It looks like Jesus was the savior of their world. But if we're gonna say Jesus is the savior of the world, then what we're actually saying is that Jesus died for all of us from Adam to the end, everybody, every generation, every person, everyone on the entire planet. That's a big savior. What we're also needing to declare and believe today is that Jesus is a savior of the world today. That he saved you. That he wants to save your neighbor and your coworkers and our city and everyone on the West Plains and to the ends of the earth. That everyone is worthy of the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's still true that Jesus is the savior of our modern world. Now, we have many cool things in our modern world, don't we? How many of you are super glad that you live in this time period? I am. Yeah, I'm super glad that I live in this time period. And there are lots of things that I'm super excited about that we have in our lives that the world has not seen for thousands and thousands of years. Like I am so, so happy about a hot shower every morning. I, I, ask Kate, I love hot showers. I love flush toilets. There's just something about, bye. <laughs> that smell is not in my house, bye. I can see that go away and then I can turn on a modern fan. Boop. And away you go, right? I mean, this is modern convenience. You know, did you know the refrigerator is not very old? I mean, we've really only had refrigeration in, in every normal day house since about the 50s or 60s. That's not very old. I mean, before that, you were growing your own stuff in your backyard. And then now you can get pizza and then put it in the fridge and have it tomorrow. This is awesome, people. I mean... The modern life is awesome. We're sending people into outer space right now and coming back just for the experience. Modern technology has helped us live a very different life than generations before us. Now, why, do I, why am I talking about this? Because I, I have a question. Because of all this technology and all the awesome stuff we have, and I'm so glad that I'm living here, I, I have a couple questions that I still have in my head, like, like this one. Is there still brokenness in the world today? Are people still hurting one another today? Is evil real and still noticeable today? You mean sin is still happening in our modern world? 
You mean our modern world has, all of our technology hasn't figured out and helped us live out this book perfectly yet? Helped us understand the love of our heavenly father and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? I, I thought modern technology would make us better. Well, it's not because it's not focusing on our soul. It's not focusing on our soul. It's focusing on our concerns, not God's concerns. And so our FIDs, oh, you don't know that one. Your false identity detector. That's your phone, by the way. Your false identity device. You can take that one, by the way. That's free this morning. You can spread it around everywhere you want. It's your FID, your false identity device. I'm not sure our modern world is helping us very much. We seem to be getting better at sin, not worse at it. Well, we're better and worse at it, I guess, is really what's happening. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's still pretty obvious in our modern world that we need Jesus. And we need him bad. I need him. You need him. And everyone we know needs him. Let me close with this in Mark chapter 8. Jesus asked two questions at the beginning. The first one is a leading question. The second one's more important. The first one is, who do people say I am? But that's only a leading question to get to the more important question. And it's this one. Who do you say I am? See, in the end, this is the most important question we will ever ask. This very, very personal question about Jesus. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us out of this room needs to answer this question. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the savior of the world to you? Is he a teacher? Is he a fraud? Who is he? Because our soul is the most important thing, it's our responsibility to keep our own soul in check. But we also get the extreme and awesome privilege of helping other people with their soul. Because what Jesus says is when you follow me and you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you lose your life to save it, then people will see Jesus in you. They won't see you anymore. They'll see Jesus. And when they see Jesus, then we get to answer and help them answer this very important question. Who do you say I am? And when you and I get to lead someone to Jesus from our own life, from the way that we're living for Jesus, I have to tell you, there's nothing better. I mean, you couldn't touch it with $50 billion in your account. How good it makes you feel to point somebody else to Jesus and help them say yes to Jesus 
and watch them inherit eternal life. There's nothing better. Nothing touches it on the planet. Nothing even comes close. So I want to encourage you, as we head towards Easter, I'm trusting because I know my God. I know my Savior who loves your neighbor and your friends and your coworkers, that the Holy Spirit is going to open up several opportunities between now and Easter for you to invite them to church, to invite them to understand who Jesus is to invite them into relationship with him. And I want to encourage you to take advantage of those opportunities. They, they don't come by all the time, but we have two, two spots on our calendar where you get a, a quick and easy conversation to talk about Jesus. It's Christmas and Easter. Now, Easter is harder because we're talking about the man and not the baby. Not many people want to mock the baby. But when you talk about Jesus and you talk about Jesus crucified and you talk about Jesus risen and how your soul is more important than the eggs you're going to get in a basket from a six-foot bunny that walks on two feet, (laughs) they might want to have a conversation about that. And I'm going to guess that a lot of your friends and neighbors and coworkers want to have that conversation. They're yearning to have that conversation with you. They want to have it because their soul wants to answer that question. Their soul is asking that question. So would you take advantage of the opportunities that you have in the near future? And then lastly, let me just ask this question, because I think it's important for us to answer it in in, in a biblical way that, um, so that you can go into these conversations. Two, really. The first one is this. What had convinced Peter to accept that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, Peter had accepted it because he's hanging around with Jesus. He saw Jesus teach with authority. He saw his miracles. He he saw this super large catch of fish when Jesus told him to cast his net on the other side. He saw him casting out demons and raising the dead and walking on water and calming storms. And then later he saw him die on the cross and come back to life. Peter saw all that. He recognized it and he believed it. Now, it'd be awesome if we could all experience that in person. We could go back in time and see who Jesus was, but we have to answer the question in our own way today, according to God's word. And so I'm going to ask you to answer this question this week. What has convinced you that Jesus is the Savior of the world? and your personal savior. Peter knew why. Do you know why? And are you excited that he's inside your soul? And are you excited to tell others about him? I'm convinced, uh, and I'm biased, I'll admit it. I'm convinced that there's no greater way to live than to just love Jesus and share him with everyone you can. And it's a privilege that I get to have, but I'll be honest, the privilege is more yours than mine because you interact with the world more than I do. And so I want to encourage you as your pastor 
to look for those moments in the next couple weeks because I guarantee you they're coming. Would you stand and pray with me?